0: I to hear the opening to this famous story of Lazarus that we encounter in John chapter 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who appointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love Is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. What is uncertain about mortality? What it is, how it happens, where it leads. This last week, one of Jesus' statements in this passage hit me in a way that it never did before. When Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. And so it made me wonder, does part of our uncertainty when it comes to mortality, does it involve uh, where we think or maybe where we wonder where our mortality leads? Continuing on in the story, it says, after this, Jesus says to the disciples, let us go. To Judea once again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and you were going there again? This is a time when Jesus very commonly, would go into a place. He would say what he had to say about the kingdom of God, and it really rabbled those who were very established and very comfortable by the way things were. And so here comes Jesus talking about his own truth, and it makes everybody in a frenzy, so much so that many times they're ready to kill him, and then, of course, they leave. And now the disciples saying, you actually want to go back to one of those places. To us, of course, that would seem nuts. However... One of the disciples says something different. The the disciple Thomas. Thomas is the one that says, let us go that we may die with him. Now, it's not really clear the hymn whom thomas is talking about is thomas saying let us go and die with him lazarus so maybe in the same way uh, our deaths through god may be glorified the way that jesus is saying lazarus will be or is thomas saying let us go and die with jesus who might likely be killed by showing up again does it mean that lazarus wants to die in the way that jesus is going to for surely, many of us know what happens later on in the gospel, that we see that neither Thomas nor any of the disciples actually stick around to experience what Jesus will. And yet, Jesus comes back to every single one of them. The concept of death and mortality in our 21st century Western culture is kind of a weird thing. It's, we don't really talk about it. I don't know about you, but my son, being a fifth grader, sings that Bruno song every single day. And it's the same five words over and over. But it's true, right? We don't talk about it. You know, when we talk about death... we, we kind of push it away. It's this thing that we all know is true, and yet we don't want to talk about it. Even when it happens in the midst of our own lives, we don't really open up and talk about it. We don't seem to do a lot with our grief, including letting other people know about it, if we can help it. Nor sometimes do we actually... At least openly receive that support when people do hear about it, someone might hear about the passing of our loved one and they come and they want to offer us consolation and, and and peace and just saying, you know, I'm here for you. And we just kind of push away saying, oh, that's okay. They're in a better place. As though that's supposed to fix everything. Some of you were at our Embrace Hope event that we had a couple months ago now at this point. It it kept getting pushed off because of the the pandemic, but it was an opportunity for us to be able to speak into and process and at the very least just acknowledge the grief that we might be going through, even if it wasn't necessarily pandemic grief, but everything that had just been going on these last couple of years and, and sort of find a way to sort of exhale through that. We had uh, a few speakers. One of them was a counselor by the name of Rika. And she talks about this this hesitation that we have as Americans to grieve. She said, it used to be, at the very least, we would wear black for a year. Remember that? You know, someone in our family dies and, and it was this outward sign of showing what it is that was going on inwardly. The ancient Israelites had great practices and rituals. Of sharing their grief. If a loved one passed, typically many times they would go outside of their home, usually dressed in tatters or old clothing. Sometimes they would cut their hair and they would sit in a pile of ash and then just simply be there for their community to see them in this time of loss and pain. And so sometimes neighbors would come by and they would offer to help. They would, they would do the daily chores. Maybe they would offer food. Or at the very least, they would just sit down in the pile of ash with the person and just be with them. And then after a, a, a season, after a certain amount of time, that person who had been grieving would stand up, brush themselves off, and they would resume life. They would live again. I write about this a bit in my uh, my book that's uh, being offered right now, Shawshank, where we hide, and one of the chapters is devoted to when and where we hide from death. And in the book, I write about when my father uh, passed away. Actually, it was it will be uh, ten years ago um, this week that he passed away. And just talking about how easy it was to kind of go through the motions of grief at the time because I'm a pastor. So I did all the things that one is supposed to do. I made all the phone calls. I helped family members process, you know, their grief and their shock. I talked shop with the professionals at the funeral home, at the church that my family was attending. You know, I put together the order of worship wrote a message and a eulogy to preach. I did everything that I was supposed to do and everything happened the way that it was supposed to happen until the very last person left the church. And I remember turning around, seeing all the flowers at the altar and not knowing what I was supposed to do. Because at that point, I wasn't a pastor anymore. I was just a son who had lost a father. None of us escape the uncertainty or the reality of mortality. And the ironic thing is, or the confessional thing is, as Christians, we seem to be the ones the most often who tend to try to escape it. We so crave that message which tells us that after death, we will be given this reward and we will be taken to a beautiful place where there is no more pain, there is no more sickness, there is no more death, all problems are solved. And there's nothing uh, necessarily wrong with those images. There's nothing wrong with that theology. But if we focus on that too much, or if that is all that we focus on, we can tend to think of this time on this earth, this life now, almost like a test or an audition to get us to that next great place, rather than realizing what Jesus said about the kingdom of God being here and now. And so, maybe the uncertainty of mortality is sort of wrapped up in that question that I know we have all asked in one way or another. What happens when we die? And so, McGray de Vega, who writes this book, Embracing the Uncertain, he actually writes into this and talks about a parishioner who asked him that question, and of course, all of the sub questions that maybe all of us have asked at one time or another. What kind of bodies will we have in the world to come? How will we recognize each other? What age will I have in heaven? Will it be the age I was when I died or a more youthful looking me? Will I see my loved ones? What will we do for all eternity? And McGray writes, the questions are almost limitless, matched only by our urgency to find the answers to them. Now, again, there is absolutely nothing wrong with asking these questions. There's nothing wrong with exploring these questions and talking about them. There's nothing wrong with reflecting on our mortality, especially during Lent. There's nothing wrong with considering where we are in life and where we think and hope we may be heading. The question that we need to also consider, though, from time to time is, How much of this is taking up my attention and my capacity right here in this life right now? The story goes on. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Mary stayed at home. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, we don't necessarily know why why Mary is at home. Mary, who, remember, at the first part of the story, is the one who comes and actually spends time with Jesus, takes all that oil, rubs his feet while Martha is in the kitchen ignoring Jesus. Now it seems as though the roles are reversed. And for whatever reason, Mary cannot bring herself, at least in this moment, to be with Jesus. And Martha sort of embodies the uncertainty and the anxiety that both of them may be dealing with. But it's important for us to remember this scene and what Martha does. I know that he will rise again. I know that he will be in a better place. Again, it's almost as though she's trying to cover up all of that uncertainty and anxiety and grief by saying, I know it's all going to turn out okay. But Jesus doesn't let her stop there. He brings her back into the here and now. I am resurrection. I am life. Don't forget that I am standing right in front of you. I am here with you now. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? And of course, we may say as American Christians, yes, we believe that's what we're all about. But remember the ancient Greek way that Jesus is asking this. In fact, even that is translated into English. It's important for us to remember, Jesus says, believe, but Jesus also says, live. The expectation is not just for us to believe in this. The expectation and the hope that Jesus brings is for us to live in this. Do we not just believe it? Do we live it? Do we live? A couple of years ago, BBC filmed a new adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Dracula, of course, is the infamous vampire, a creature who has lived for centuries because he has been taking the blood and thus the life of others for his own immortality. So in a sense, Dracula not only cheats death, but he does it by causing the death of so many others. Now in this version, one of the new angles that the story takes is this recurring question, why does Dracula fear the cross? Now, on the surface, that might seem simple, and they kind of have different reasons. One says, well, it's because it embodies, you know, it's the symbol of of goodness, and it's the symbol of truth, and that's why Dracula can't stand it. Dracula himself even gives a reason. He says, I've been imbibing people's superstition for so long that I have inherited this fear of the cross that you all have because the cross really represents oppression, and it represents pain. And then they realize that none of that is true. It's kind of important to remember that when Dracula is first published in the early 19th century, it's in the emergence of the Enlightenment, Victoria, England, this idea of people putting more investment in science rather than religion. In fact, you might even say that Dracula is kind of the manifestation of the the death of superstition because Dracula is defeated by modern society and science. So even these heroes don't necessarily have the religious background to really understand, at least at first why Dracula would fear the cross. But near the end, one of them finally discovers the truth and confronts Dracula with it. They say that cross speaks of a courage you long to possess. It represents the one thing you are too afraid to do, die. Now, of course, we have questions about death and about mortality, because we simply don't know. We don't know when, we don't know how, and we don't even really know what happens afterward, even from consulting Scripture. And this is part of what Reverend McGray gets us thinking about, is that even through consulting Scripture, Scripture is not cohesively agreed on exactly what happens. What we do know Or at the very least, what we can believe and what we can live into is when Jesus says, I am resurrection and I am life now as much as the not yet. And while someone like Dracula, the antithesis of life, takes life by taking blood, Jesus offers life. In all of its fullness, including his own body, including his own blood. Now, to say it out loud like that sounds kind of strange. It might even sound kind of off-putting. Not only odd in the physical sense, but maybe even more so. This seems odd. This may even seem too much in the relational sense. That Christ wants to be in relationship with us this fully, this completely, this openly, that he literally offers his all to us so that as we receive, we may experience life. So that we might live, not just in a distant future, but that we would have eternal life here and now. So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always will hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When Jesus had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in that cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him. Unbind him. And let him go. This is part of what Jesus means in the resurrection of the body. It is a full and complete resurrection that we experience. It is not just a partial. It is not just a piece. It is a full resurrection. Everything that we are, the wholeness of God's creation, what John Wesley refers to as the image of God, that restoration that we so long pray for in this life, that perfected image We fully and completely experience that in that resurrection as we are fully restored, as we are given new life. And the joy of this good news is that we do not have to wait to the end of our physical life to experience this joy. Remember that the joy of Easter is coming. This story is almost kind of a foreshadowing, a teaser, if you will, of what it is that Jesus himself will experience when he walks out of his own tomb. But Let us also remember the message that Jesus is giving right here and now. It is both and the now and the not yet. I am not just the resurrection on Easter. I am the resurrection and the life right here in front of you. So in the midst of our uncertainty, let us embrace that by also embracing Christ's message, that it is not one way or the other, for God is not limited by one way or the other. God is always present in the midst of what it is that we go through, even those hard and difficult seasons, even in that second stretch of Lent as the. As the terrain may still seem the exact same as it did the day before, God continues to walk with us and God continues to restore and nourish us. When you give in Connectional Giving Sunday or Ukraine, you're giving them a tangible remembrance that Christ is in the midst, that God is in the midst of what it is that they are going through. May we continue to be those hands and feet to offer the story that Jesus says, I am here and I'm not going anywhere. I am resurrection. I am life right here, right now. May that be the strength to get us through this next half of the Lenten journey as we go forward through Easter to Easter. And may that give us peace. Amen.